Hello, everyone. This is Paul Stein from NIPTI. And as you probably know, April has been designated as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And every day, prosecutors work with victims and their loved ones who are affected by sexual assault. And part of our responsibility as prosecutors is helping these folks find support or counseling and treatment to aid with their recovery from the trauma caused by the crime. My guest today is an expert in providing services to victims and their loved ones. Elizabeth Cronin is the director of the New York State Office of Victim Services, a position she has held since 2013. Prior to that, she was the director of the Office of Legal Affairs for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Elizabeth was also an assistant district attorney in Westchester County, where for over a decade, she served as deputy bureau chief in the Special Prosecutions Division, where I met her and we even shared an office for a time. She was also an adjunct professor of criminal justice at Pace University and is a proud graduate of Fairfield University and Pace University Law School. And Elizabeth, welcome and thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise with us today. Paul, it's great to be getting the band back together. (laughs) Yes, as they say. (laughs) Well, Liz, let's start with your agency. And could you tell us a little bit about what you do and what the mission of the Office of Victim Services is? Sure. So the Office of Victim Services started originally in the 1960s as the Crime Victim Compensation Board, which some people who have been around for a while may remember. And it really was started as a way of providing support and resources for people who were victimized by violent crime and had no other resources available to them. So New York was actually the first permanent program of its kind in the country. And so it has evolved over time responding to different kinds of victimization, adding different communities of people. But essentially, the mission is broken down into three parts. So we provide direct financial compensation to victims of crime. We provide funding to victim advocates throughout the state. We fund well over 200 programs throughout the entire state. And we also advocate for victims through legislation, through public speaking, through doing programs like this. And so if someone is the victim of a crime or knows somebody who's the victim of a crime, how does somebody become eligible to receive assistance from your office? I'm so happy that we're actually doing this because I think there's a lot of people who don't know who we are or what we do. And I have to admit that even when I was a prosecutor, I didn't know much about this agency at all. And we are your friend. What I think a lot of us as prosecutors experienced was For many reasons, including lack of resources, it was difficult to get victims to cooperate with law enforcement and to follow through with a prosecution. What our agency can do is provide the financial support for them so that they are in a better position to heal from their trauma and uh, work with the system if they choose to do that. And that's part of why my agency is so important. What I think prosecutors should know is, first, a lot of law enforcement agencies, including prosecutors' offices, have victim advocates funded by my organization right there. So, for example, in Westchester County, where you and I both practice, they have advocates funded through my agency who are trauma-trained to assist them. If you remember, 
how difficult it was with the kinds of cases we were doing that we always felt like we were a social worker and a teacher and a handholder and a lawyer. Now, organizations like DA's offices can have somebody who is specifically trained to provide those services. Well, let's say a prosecutor is working on a case, whether it's a special victims case or any other kind of case. How do they determine that the folks they're working with are eligible for what it is that you guys can provide? So there are a lot of different types of victimization that would qualify someone to be eligible, and it can get a little complicated. So if a prosecutor's office does not have a victim advocate, I would find out if your local law enforcement organization has one. And the thing about New York that's unique among all the other states is we, at this time, provide unlimited financial reimbursement for medical and counseling expenses. And that can go on for the life of the person. So if someone is assaulted and 10 years later something triggers that, if they file the claim with us, they can go back to counseling and we will continue to pay for that. So what my recommendation would be is for a prosecutor who has one of these cases to contact their local victim advocate. They can go to any program that is funded by OVS simply to file a compensation claim. The people there are trained by us to know how to file a claim, know who's eligible, know what can be paid for. And I think they are really one of your best resources. I think 80 or something percent of our claims are filed through a victim advocate. If the office doesn't have a victim advocate, and I'm thinking like some of the less populated areas of the state might not be able to have their own victim advocate, and maybe the police department doesn't have one, is it acceptable or is it okay for the ADA to go on your website and seek a way to contact you through your website? Yes. Last April, we launched what we call Resource Connect. It's called a concern center tool. And what that means is that a person can plug in ordinary language into the tool with a location where they're seeking services. And that will bring up all of the programs that provide those specific services in that specific area. The services are free and it can be anything from civil legal services. It can be somebody providing services in child abuse and domestic violence. I mean, in anything where somebody's looking for information. So you would go to obs.ny.gov dot concern center, one word, dot com. You can also contact OVS directly if you have a question. So you can go to OVS info, I-N-F-O, one word, at ovs.ny.gov. You know, some cases can be really complicated. We're working right now on the Brooklyn subway shooting, and it involves working with NYPD. Now the feds are involved. They filed federal charges. We're working with the DA's office. Now we'll be working with the U.S. Attorney's office and the advocates down there. Well, that actually brings up a good point, Liz. I'm glad you referenced something as, as recent in time as we're talking now as the Brooklyn shooting, because I think it's important to know that in the process of the criminal case, earlier is better. Is that generally right? You don't need to wait for a conviction. Am I, am I right about that? There doesn't have to be a conviction at all. So if we have a victim who, let's say, charges are filed. So in this case, we have charges filed. Anyone who would be eligible, even if the guy went to trial and got acquitted, 
in those cases, those folks will still remain eligible. And not only are they eligible, but many members of their families may be eligible as well. But in a case where someone is killed, there are certain benefits. You know, we pay for a certain level of burial expenses. But in the ordinary type of criminal offense or one that involves the police, there are a lot of resources for the victim, but also for the victim's family. And that can include loss of earnings, loss of support, counseling. It could be relocation expenses, crime scene cleanup. Like there's quite a litany of benefits that a person can access. What about things like mental health counseling for the victim and their family and medical follow-up? Anything about those things or child care if they need to go to court for appointments and maybe relocation, any of those sorts of things covered by you guys as well? Yeah, so we'll pay for relocation expenses up to $2,500. We're also a payer of last resort. So if except in this case, and we can talk about this, of a forensic sexual assault exam, which is completely paid for by my office, and there is no payer of last resort on that exam. If someone has health insurance or they have, you know, workers' comp or something, they may have to exhaust that before our benefits kick in. Just so that I'm clear, for everything except sexual assault exams, person would have, if they have insurance, they'd have to exhaust their insurance before they can seek funds from you, for example, right? Yeah. Okay. And I think for people who are working with victims who are not familiar with everything that we can do, you know, my advice would be to not guess or not overpromise because nothing frustrates an already traumatized person like being told they're going to get something and they don't get it. So it's really pick up the phone and call us or send us an email or call an advocate because it can get really complicated. You know, there's all different crimes. There's a lot of nuances to it. So it's just a matter of reaching out, asking, you know, any of us are happy to help with those kinds of specifics. Let's go back just a little bit to talk about the forensic sexual assault exams and who that covers and what sorts of things that covers. It's called an FRE, so it's a forensic rape exam, which kind of tells you how old it is from the language. We're trying to get more modernized with the language, but essentially all someone has to do is go to a certified medical provider, normally it's a hospital, and uh, report a sexual assault and they'll be given an examination. It involves a genital examination. It can involve taking swabs and taking an allegation that there may have been drug-induced sexual assault. And so when they do that kit, it's completely confidential and the victim does not have to pay for that exam. So the hospital is required to tell the person that they can get this exam, which is confidential and it's paid for by OVS, or they can use their health insurance. They have to sign a form about that. And then, you know, the kit is either stored or sent off to law enforcement, depending on whether the victim wants to go ahead with having it tested. You're describing a situation essentially where a victim is coming into the hospital without contacting law enforcement and saying, I think something happened and they're not sure if they want to charge or not. Is that correct? Correct. So if they go into the hospital, they have the choice about what they want to happen with that kit. And if 
I know all of you are familiar with all those untested kits that sat, you know, for a long time. New York is actually pretty good comparatively. My agency has actually been tasked to oversee the development of a warehouse to contain all of the untested kits and maintain them because the law changed to hold the kits for 20 years. Then if a victim changes their mind, they can go and ask for that kit to be tested and then law enforcement will have the opportunity to come get it from us. And just another aspect, I think I read this on your site, or maybe when I was talking to you, you had mentioned the program you have for sexual assaults that occur on campus, Enough is Enough. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and how our prosecutors can access that? So Enough is Enough is actually administered through the Office of the Prevention for Domestic Violence, and it requires universities and colleges in New York to adopt a set of comprehensive procedures and guidelines There's a definition of affirmative consent, which I think is probably one of the hardest things for prosecutors to kind of think through. There is a student's bill of rights. Campuses are required to provide prevention and training. But it also provides quite a bit of funding to the state police to do investigations on these college campus cases. What is good is that the funding flows through OPDV to a number of sexual assault programs that do campus sexual assault work. I can't stress enough in all my experience of how important it is to have somebody who's doing the trauma care for somebody who you're trying to work with on a prosecution. And so, especially in these cases, which are so complicated. I think that's something that you and I both experienced together is that sometimes these folks were so traumatized, the prosecution became too much for them, and that's how we ended up losing a lot of victims to non-cooperation, that they just couldn't handle it. And that's such a good point that you raised, that we really need to help them deal with the trauma of it so that we can help them successfully prosecute the case. I mean, it's why it was so important to change the time of holding those kits. So this is our fault, because when I first got there in 2013, we started looking at this issue and they were only required to hold them for 30 days. And some hospitals held them for 30 days. Some hospitals held them for a year. Some hospitals didn't know where they were. It was completely inconsistent. And as we know, because of the trauma response, that so many people are not ready at the get-go. It's terrifying. And there's nothing worse than being a sexual assault victim on the witness stand. You know, people don't understand it. And it's very hard to be in that position. So having an extended period of time within which to be prepared and to really have information about what the process is going to be like and to give somebody time to to sort of heal is critical. Liz, in the time we have left, I'd like to have you talk about one of the programs you have for child sexual assault victims. And I think this is a really good program especially in the counties that are less populated and more spread out. So would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. This is one of the things I'm most proud of because most of the cases I handled were child abuse when I was in the DA's office. So like this is an issue that's really important to me. And in 2015, we started to get a significant increase in funding from our federal funder. That has since gone down exponentially. We were really trying to think creatively about how we could utilize this money. So we contacted the Office of Children and Family Services, one of our sister agencies that handles child advocacy centers and stuff. And we fund a lot of those child advocacy centers. 
they did not have CACs in every county. And especially in counties, like you say, that are rural or, you know, have a lot more challenges with funding programs and maintaining and sustaining funding. So we partnered with them to do two things. One was to expand child advocacy centers to every county in the state because we were hearing kids were being driven two and a half hours just to get an exam. And it was like untenable. You, you just you can't do that to a traumatized child. The other thing that we thought is, how can we get services to rural areas? And so victims, if they don't have a car, they can't get somewhere. So what we did was we gave them funding to make mobile child advocacy vans. They're Winnebago's. And they contracted with Winnebago and have developed, I think we're up to seven, and then we're working on increasing that number. And these vans can be either just for like a forensic exam. So they've got, you know, the two-way mirror, they have recording equipment, because that's also something we have funded in the past, forensic interviewers, recording equipment, if your jurisdiction uses that. And so they go to the kids and there's no markings on it. It doesn't say like child abuse on the side of it. It's just a white Winnebago. They're really state of the art, very up to date. And then they can also do actual physical exam. Are they a forensically trained interviewer and a nurse or a doctor to do? Correct. So if they're going to do that type of exam on it, most of the stuff is the interviews, but you can have an ADA a person from law enforcement, the child, the advocate. I mean, it's pretty spacious and, you know, it has a little place for snacks and it's designed so that it looks like a real room. So, you know, they tried to make it as child-friendly as possible. And what this has really demonstrated to us is that this is something that we'd love to, if we get more funding, to expand to other populations. You know, elder abuse, it would be wonderful if we could have this type of vehicle used to go out to communities where older people don't drive or they can't get out or, you know, so it's like just thinking about things in a different way. And I think one of the things that I've learned about working for a state agency is how diverse we are. You know, we're diverse demographically, we're diverse geographically, and you you can't have a one size fits all solution. Like you really have to be thinking about how are we going to provide services to any particular community that's, you know, going to be appropriate for them. So very quickly, Liz, how would an ADA reach out and see if they could get one of these vans to come and, <laughs> and interview well, with you? We're working through OCFS. They're really telling us where the need is because they oversee all the child advocacy centers. And some, for example, they would take our funding. There's one, I think it's up in Plattsburgh, that the child advocacy van is actually operated through the child advocacy center. You know, if somebody is interested, they should reach out to their CAC to see if there's one in the area, or if not, you know, let OCFS know that, um, or you can let us know too. The other thing that I wanted to mention, Paul, that I forgot is in reference to the FRE exam, we will also pay for the starter pack for the HIV pet meds. Well, Liz, I want to thank you so much. You've given us a ton of great information today, and I want to thank you for being my guest and office mate all those years ago. <laughs> it was great to talk to you. Uh, I hope you, to see you in person sometime soon. 
And for everybody else, thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Paul Stein at NIPTI telling everyone to be safe. And we'll talk again next time. Thanks. Thanks.